Welcome to the 53rd reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 18, Section 3. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 3. Another iniquity charge upon the Mass is that it sinks and buries the cross and passion of Christ. This much indeed is most certain. The cross of Christ is overthrown the moment an altar is erected. For if on the cross he offered himself in sacrifice that he might sanctify us forever, and purchase eternal redemption for us, undoubtedly the power and efficacy of his sacrifice continues without end. Otherwise we should not think more honorably of Christ than of the oxen and calves which were sacrificed under the law, the offering of which is proved to have been weak and inefficacious because often repeated. Wherefore it must be admitted, either that the sacrifice which Christ offered on the cross wanted the power of eternal cleansing, or that he performed this once forever by his one sacrifice. Accordingly, the Apostle says, quote, Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, unquote. Again, quote, by the which fact we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, unquote. Again, quote, for by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified, unquote. To this he subjoins the celebrated passage, quote, Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin, unquote. The same thing Christ intimated by his latest voice when, on giving up the ghost, he exclaimed, quote, It is finished, unquote. We are accustomed to observe the last words of the dying as oracular. Christ, when dying, declares that by his one sacrifice is perfected and fulfilled whatever was necessary to our salvation. To such a sacrifice, whose perfection he so clearly declared, shall we, as if it were imperfect, presume daily to append innumerable sacrifices. Since the sacred word of God not only affirms but proclaims and protests that this sacrifice was once accomplished and remains eternally in force, do not those who demand another charge it with imperfection and weakness. But to what tends the mass which has been established that a hundred thousand sacrifices may be performed every day, but just to bury and suppress the passion of our Lord in which he offered himself to his Father as the only victim? Who but a blind man does not see that it was satanic audacity to oppose a truth so clear and transparent? I am not unaware of the impostures by which the father of lies is wont to cloak his fraud, these, that the sacrifices are not different or various, but that the one sacrifice is repeated. Such smoke is easily dispersed. The apostle, during his whole discourse, contends not only that there are no other sacrifices, but that that one was once offered and is no more to be repeated. The more subtle try to make their escape by a still narrower loophole, these, 
that it is not repetition but application, that there is no more difficulty in computing the sophism also. For Christ did not offer himself once in the view that his sacrifice should be daily ratified by new oblations, but that by the preaching of the gospel and the dispensation of the sacred supper, the benefit of it should be communicated to us. Thus Paul says that, quote, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, unquote, and he bids us, quote, keep the feast, unquote. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. The method, I say, in which the cross of Christ is duly applied to us is when the enjoyment is communicated to us and we receive it with true faith. Section 4. But it is worthwhile to hear on what other foundation besides they rear up their sacrifice of the Mass. To this end, they drag in the prophecy of Malachi, in which the Lord promises that, quote, in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, unquote, Malachi 1, verse 11, as if it were new or unusual for the prophets, when they speak of the calling of the Gentiles, to designate the spiritual worship of God to which they call them by the external rites of the law, more familiarly to intimate to the men of their age that they were to be called into the true fellowship of religion, just as in general they are wont to describe the truth which has been exhibited by the gospel by the types of their own age. Thus they use going up to Jerusalem for conversion to the Lord, the bringing of all kinds of gifts for the adoration of God, dreams and visions for the more ample knowledge with which believers were to be endued in the kingdom of Christ. The passage they quote from Malachi resembles one in Isaiah, in which the prophet speaks of three altars to be erected in Assyria, Egypt, and Judea. First I ask whether or not they grant that this prophecy is fulfilled in the kingdom of Christ. Secondly, where are those altars, or when were they ever erected? Thirdly, do they suppose that a single temple is destined for a single kingdom, as was that of Jerusalem? If they ponder these things, they will confess, I think, that the prophet, under types adapted to his age, prophesied concerning the propagation of the spiritual worship of God over the whole world. This is the answer which we give them. But, as obvious examples everywhere occur in the scripture, I am not anxious to give a longer enumeration, although they are miserably deluded in this also, that they acknowledge no sacrifice but that of the Mass, whereas in truth, Believers now sacrifice to God and offer him a pure offering, of which we shall speak by and by. Section 5. I now come to the third part of the Mass, in regard to which we are to explain how it obliterates the true and only death of Christ and drives it from the memory of men. For as among men the confirmation of a testament depends upon the death of the testator, so also the testament by which he has bequeathed to us remission of sins and eternal righteousness our Lord has confirmed by his death. Those who dare to make any change or innovation on this testament deny his death, and hold it as of no moment. Now what is the Mass, but a new and altogether different testament? What? Does not each Mass promise a new forgiveness of sins, a new purchase of righteousness, so that now there are as many testaments as there are Masses? Therefore let Christ come again, and by another death make this new testament, or rather, by innumerable deaths, ratify the innumerable testaments of the Mass. Said I not true then at the outset that the only true death of Christ is obliterated by the Mass? For what is the direct aim of the Mass but just to put Christ again to death, if that were possible? For, as the Apostle says, quote, where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, unquote. Hebrews 9, verse 16. The novelty of the Mass bears on the face of it to be a testament of Christ, and therefore demands his death. 
Besides, it is necessary that the victim which is offered be slain and immolated. If Christ is sacrificed at each Mass, he must be cruelly slain every moment in a thousand places. This is not my argument, but the Apostles. Quote, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, unquote. Quote, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Unquote. Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26. I admit that they are ready with an answer by which they even charge us with calumny. For they say that we object to them what they never thought and could not even think. We know that the life and death of Christ are not at all in their hand. Whether they mean to slay him, we regard not. Our intention is only to show the absurdity consequent on their impious and accursed dogma. This I demonstrate from the mouth of the Apostle. Though they insist a hundred times that this sacrifice is bloodless, Greek word, Alpha, Nu, Alpha, Iota, Mu, Alpha, Chi, Tau, Omicron, Nu, and Amoctin. I will reply that it depends not on the will of man to change the nature of sacrifice, for in this way the sacred and inviolable institution of God would fall. Hence it follows that the principle of the Apostle stands firm, quote, Without shedding of blood is no remission, unquote. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Section 6. The fourth property of the Mass which we are to consider is that it robs us of the benefit which redounded to us from the death of Christ while it prevents us from recognizing it and thinking of it. For who can think that he has been redeemed by the death of Christ when he sees a new redemption in the Mass? Who can feel confident that his sins have been remitted when he sees a new remission? It will not do to say that the only ground on which we obtain forgiveness of sins in the Mass is because it has been already purchased by the death of Christ. For this is just equivalent to saying that we are redeemed by Christ on the condition that we redeem ourselves. For the doctrine which is disseminated by the ministers of Satan, and which in the present day they defend by clamor, fire, and sword, is that when we offer Christ to the Father in the Mass, we, by this work of oblation, obtain remission of sins and become partakers of the sufferings of Christ. What is now left for the sufferings of Christ, but to be an example of redemption, that we may thereby learn to be our own redeemers? Christ himself, when he seals our assurance of pardon in the supper, does not bid his disciples stop short at that act, but sends them to the sacrifice of his death, intimating that the supper is the memento, or, as it is commonly expressed, the memorial from which they may learn that the expiatory victim by which God was to be appeased was to be offered only once. For it is not sufficient to hold that Christ is the only victim, without adding that his is the only immolation, in order that our faith may be fixed to his cross. Section 7. I come now to the crowning point, these, that the sacred supper on which the Lord left the memorial of his passion formed and engraved, was taken away, hidden, and destroyed when the mass was erected. While the supper itself is a gift of God, which was to be received with thanksgiving, the sacrifice of the mass pretends to give a price to God to be received to satisfaction. As widely as giving differs from receiving, does sacrifice differ from the sacrament of the supper. But herein does the wretched ingratitude of man appear, that when the liberality of the divine goodness ought to have been recognized and thanks returned, he makes God to be his debtor. The sacrament promised that by the death of Christ we were not only restored to life once, but constantly quickened, because all the parts of our salvation were then completed. The sacrifice of the Mass uses a very different language, viz., that Christ must be sacrificed daily in order that he may lend something to us. The supper was to be dispensed at the public meeting of the church to remind us of the communion by which we are all united in Christ Jesus. This communion the sacrifice of the Mass dissolves and tears asunder.
For after the heresy prevailed, that there behoved the priests to sacrifice for the people as if the supper had been handed over to them, it ceased to be communicated to the assembly of the faithful according to the command of the Lord. Entrance has been given to private masses, which more resemble a kind of excommunication than that communion ordained by the Lord when the priestling about to devour his victim apart separates himself from the whole body of the faithful. That there may be no mistake, I call it a private mass wherein there is no partaking of the Lord's Supper among believers, though at the same time a great multitude of persons may be present. Section 8. The origin of the name of Mass I have never been able certainly to ascertain. It seems probable that it was derived from the offerings which were collected. Hence the ancients usually speak of it in the plural number. But without raising any controversy as to the name, I hold that private masses are diametrically opposed to the institution of Christ and are, therefore, an impious profanation of the sacred supper. For what did the Lord enjoin? Was it not to take and divide amongst ourselves? What does Paul teach as to the observance of this command? Is it not that the breaking of bread is the communion of body and blood? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Therefore, when one person takes without distributing, where is the resemblance? But that one acts in the name of the whole church. By what command? Is it not openly to mock God when one privately seizes for himself what ought to have been distributed among the number? But as the words both of our Savior and of Paul are sufficiently clear, we must briefly conclude that wherever there is no breaking of bread for the communion of the faithful, there is no supper of the Lord but a false and preposterous imitation of the supper. But false imitation is adulteration. Moreover, the adulteration of this high ordinance is not without impiety. In private masses, therefore, there is an impious abuse, and as in religion one fault ever and anon begets another, after that custom of offering without communion once crept in, they began gradually to make innumerable masses in all the separate corners of the churches, and to draw the people hither and thither, when they ought to have formed one meeting, and to thus recognize the mystery of their unity. Let them now go and deny their idolatry when they exhibit the bread in their masses, that they may be adored for Christ. In vain do they talk of those promises of the presence of Christ, which, however they may be understood, were certainly not given that impure and profane men might form the body of Christ as often as they please, and for whatever abuse they please, but that believers, while with religious observance they follow the command of Christ in celebrating the supper, might enjoy the true participation of it. Section 9 we may add that this perverse course was unknown to the pure church. For however the more impudent among our opponents may attempt to gloss the matter, it is absolutely certain that all antiquity is opposed to them, as has been above demonstrated in other instances, and may be more surely known by the diligent reading of the fathers. But before I conclude, I ask our missile doctors, saying they know that obedience is better than sacrifice, and God commands us to listen to his voice rather than to offer sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. How they can believe this method of sacrificing to be pleasing to God, since it is certain that he does not command it, and they cannot support it by one syllable of Scripture. Besides, when they hear the apostle declaring that, quote, No man taketh this honor to himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, unquote, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, quote, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, unquote. Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 5. 
They must either prove God to be the author and founder of their priesthood, or confess that there is no honor from God in an office into which, without being called, they have rushed with wicked temerity. They cannot produce one iota of scripture in support of their priesthood. They must not the sacrifices be vain, since they cannot be offered without a priest. Section 10. Should anyone hear obtrude concise sentences of the ancients and contend on their authority that the sacrifice which is performed in the supper is to be understood differently from what we have explained it, let this be our brief reply, that if the question relates to the approval of the fiction of sacrifice as imagined by papists in the Mass, there is nothing in the Fathers to countenance the sacrilege. They indeed use the term sacrifice, but they at the same time explain that they mean nothing more than the commemoration of that one true sacrifice which Christ, our only sacrifice, as they themselves everywhere proclaim, performed on the cross. Quote, the Hebrews, unquote, says Augustine, quote, in the victims of beasts which they offered to God, celebrated the prediction of the future victim which Christ offered. Christians now celebrate the commemoration of a finished sacrifice by the sacred oblation and participation of the body of Christ, unquote. Here he certainly teaches the same doctrine which is delivered at greater length in the treatise on faith, addressed to Peter the deacon, whoever may have been the author. The words are, quote, hold most firmly, and have no doubt at all, that the only begotten became incarnate for us, that he offered himself for us an offering, and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor to whom, with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the time of the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed, and to whom now, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, with whom there is one Godhead, the Holy Church, throughout the whole world ceases not to offer the sacrifice of bread and wine. For in those carnal victims there was a typifying of the flesh of Christ, which he himself was to offer for our sins, and of the blood which he was to shed for the forgiveness of sins. But in that sacrifice there is thanksgiving and commemoration of the flesh of Christ, which he offered for us, and of the blood which he shed for us, unquote. Hence Augustine himself, in several passages, explains that it is nothing else than a sacrifice of praise. In short, you will find in his writings, pass him, that the only reason for which the Lord's Supper is called a sacrifice is because it is a commemoration, an image, a testimonial of that singular, true, and only sacrifice by which Christ expiated our guilt. For there is a memorable passage where, after discoursing of the only sacrifice, he thus concludes, quote, Since in a sacrifice four things are considered, these to whom it is offered, by whom, what, and for whom, the same one true mediator, reconciling us to God by the sacrifice of peace, remains one with him to whom he offered, made himself one with those for whom he offered, is himself the one who offered, and the one thing which he offered, unquote. Chrysostom speaks to the same effect. They so strongly claim the honor of the priesthood for Christ alone, that Augustine declares it would be equivalent to Antichrist for anyone to make a bishop to be an intercessor between God and man. Section 11. And yet we deny not that in the supper the sacrifice of Christ is so vividly exhibited as almost to set the spectacle of the cross before our eyes, just as the Apostle says to the Galatians that Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth before their eyes when the preaching of the cross was delivered to them. Galatians 3, verse 1. But because I see that those ancient writers have rested this commemoration to a different purpose than was accordant to the divine institution, the supper somehow seemed to them to present the appearance of a repeated or at least renewed immolation. 
Nothing can be safer for the pious than to rest satisfied with the pure and simple ordinance of God, whose supper it is said to be, just because his authority alone ought to appear in it. Saying that they retained a pious and orthodox view of the whole ordinance, I cannot discover that they wish to derogate in the least from the one sacrifice of the Lord. I cannot charge them with any impiety, and yet I think they cannot be excused from having erred somewhat in the mode of action. They imitated the Jewish mode of sacrificing more closely than either Christ had ordained or the nature of the gospel allowed. The only thing, therefore, for which they may be justly censured is that preposterous analogy that, not contented with the simple and genuine institution of Christ, they decline too much the shadows of the law. Section 12. Any who will diligently consider will perceive that the word of the Lord makes this distinction between the Mosaic sacrifices and our Eucharist, that while the former represented to the Jewish people the same efficacy of the death of Christ, which is now exhibited to us in the supper, yet the form of representation was different. There the Levitical priests were ordered to typify the sacrifice which Christ was to accomplish. A victim was placed to act as a substitute for Christ himself. An altar was erected on which it was to be sacrificed. The whole, in short, was so conducted as to bring under the eye an image of the sacrifice which was to be offered to God in expiation. But now that the sacrifice has been performed, the Lord has prescribed a different method to us, these, to transmit the benefit of the sacrifice offered to him by his Son to his believing people. The Lord, therefore, has given us a table at which we may feast, not an altar on which a victim may be offered. He has not consecrated priests to sacrifice, but ministers to distribute a sacred feast. The more sublime and holy this mystery is, the more religiously and reverently ought it to be treated. Nothing, therefore, is safer than to banish all the boldness of human sense, and adhere solely to what Scripture delivers. And certainly, if we reflect that it is the supper of the Lord and not of men, why do we allow ourselves to be turned aside one nail's breadth from the Scripture by any authority of man or length of prescription? Accordingly, the Apostle and desiring completely to remove the vices which had crept into the church of Corinth as the most expeditious method recalls them to the institution itself, showing that thence a perpetual rule ought to be derived. Section 13. Lest any quarrelsome person should raise a dispute with us as to the terms sacrifice and priest, I will briefly explain what in the whole of this discussion we mean by sacrifice and what by priest. Some, on what rational ground I see not, extend the term sacrifice to all sacred ceremonies and religious acts. We know that by the uniform use of scripture, the name of sacrifice is given to what the Greeks call at one time, Greek word, theta, upsilon, sigma, iota, alpha, thusia, at another, Greek word, pi, rho, omicron, sigma, phi, omicron, rho, alpha, prospora, at another, Greek word, tau, epsilon, lambda, epsilon, tau, eta, telete. This, in its general acceptation, includes everything, whatever, that is offered to God. Wherefore, we ought to distinguish, but so that the distinction may derive its analogy from the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law, under whose shadows the Lord was pleased to represent to his people the whole reality of sacrifices. Though these were various in form, they may all be referred to two classes, for either an oblation for sin was made by a certain species of satisfaction, by which the penalty was redeemed before God, or it was a symbol and attestation of religion and divine worship, at one time in the way of supplication to demand the favor of God, 
and another by way of thanksgiving to testify gratitude to God for benefits received, and another as a simple exercise of piety to renew the sanction of the covenant to which latter branch burnt offerings and libations, oblations, first fruits, and peace offerings referred. Hence, let us also distribute them into two classes. The other class, with a view of explaining, let us call, Greek word, Lambda, Alpha, Tau, Rho, Epsilon, Upsilon, Tau, Iota, Chi, Omicron, Nu, Latritikon, and, Greek word, Sigma, Epsilon, Beta, Alpha, Sigma, Tau, Iota, Chi, Omicron, Nu, Sebastikon, as consisting of the veneration and worship which believers both owe and render to God, or, if you prefer it, let us call it, Greek word, Epsilon, Upsilon, Chi, Alpha, Rho, Iota, Sigma, Tau, Iota, Chi, Omicron, Nu, Eucharisticon, since it is exhibited to God by none but those who, enriched with his boundless benefits, offer themselves and all their actions to him in return. The other class let us call propitiatory or expiatory. A sacrifice of expiation is one whose object is to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy his justice, and thereby wipe and wash away the sins by which the sinner, being cleansed and restored to purity, may return to favor with God. Hence the name which was given in the law to the victims which were offered in expiation of sin. Exodus 29, verse 36. Not that they were adequate to regain the favor of God and wipe away guilt, but because they typified the true sacrifice of this nature, which was at length performed in reality by Christ alone, by him alone because no other could, and once because the efficacy and power of the one sacrifice performed by Christ is eternal, as he declared by his voice when he said, quote, It is finished, unquote. That is, that everything necessary to regain the favor of the Father to procure forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and salvation, that all this was performed and consummated by his one oblation, and hence nothing was wanting. No place was left for another sacrifice. Section 14. Wherefore I conclude that it is an abominable insult and intolerable blasphemy as well against Christ as the sacrifice which by his death he performed for us on the cross for anyone to think of repeating the oblation, of purchasing the forgiveness of sins, of propitiating God, and obtaining justification. But what else is done in the Mass than to make us partakers of the sufferings of Christ by means of a new oblation? That there might be no limit to their extravagance, they have deemed it little to say that it properly becomes a common sacrifice for the whole church without adding that it is at their pleasure to apply it specially to this one or that as they choose, or rather, to anyone who is willing to purchase their merchandise from them for a price paid. Moreover, as they could not come up to the estimate of Judas still, that they might in some way refer to their author, they make the resemblance to consist in the number. He sold for thirty pieces of silver. They, according to the French method of computation, sell for thirty pieces of brass. He did it once, they as often as a purchaser is met with. We deny that they are priests in this sense, namely, that by such oblations they intercede with God for the people, that by propitiating God they make expiation for sins. Christ is the only pontiff and priest of the New Testament. To him all priestly offices were transferred, and in him they closed and terminated. Even had Scripture made no mention of the eternal priesthood of Christ, yet as God, after abolishing those ancient sacrifices, appointed no new priest, the argument of the apostle remains invincible. Quote, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Unquote. Hebrews 5, verse 4. 
How then can those sacrilegious men, who by their own account are murderers of Christ, dare to call themselves the priests of the living God? Section 15. There is a most elegant passage in the second book of Plato's Republic, speaking of ancient expiations and deriding the foolish confidence of wicked and iniquitous men, who thought that by them, as a kind of veils, they concealed their crimes from the gods, and as if they had made a passion with the gods, indulged themselves more securely. He seems accurately to describe the use of the expiation of the Mass as it exists in the world in the present day. All know that it is unlawful to defraud and circumvent another, to do injustice to widows, to pillage pupils, to molest the poor, to seize the goods of others by wicked arts, to get possession of any man's succession by fraud and perjury, to oppress by violence and tyrannical terror, all admit to be impious. How then do so many, as if assured of impunity, dare to do all those things? Undoubtedly, if we duly consider, we will find that the only thing which gives them so much courage is that by the sacrifice of the Mass as a price paid, they trust that they will satisfy God, or at least will easily find a means of transacting with Him. Plato next proceeds to deride the gross stupidity of those who think by such expiations to redeem the punishments which they must otherwise suffer after death. And what is meant by anniversaries and the greater part of masses in the present day, but just that those who through life have been the most cruel tyrants or most rapacious plunderers are adepts in all kinds of wickedness, may, as if redeemed at this price, escape the fire of purgatory. Section 16. Under the other kind of sacrifice, which we have called Eucharistic, are included all the offices of charity, by which, while we embrace our brethren, we honor the Lord himself and his members. In fine, all our prayers, praises, thanksgivings, and every act of worship which we perform to God. All these depend on the greater sacrifice with which we dedicate ourselves, soul and body, to be a holy temple to the Lord. For it is not enough that our external acts be framed to obedience, but we must dedicate and consecrate first ourselves, and secondly, all that we have so that all which is in us may be subservient to his glory and be stirred up to magnify it. This kind of sacrifice has nothing to do with appeasing God, with obtaining remission of sins, with procuring justification, but is wholly employed in magnifying and extolling God, since it cannot be grateful and acceptable to God unless at the hand of those who, having received forgiveness of sins, have already been reconciled and freed from guilt. This is so necessary to the church that it cannot be dispensed with. Therefore it will endure forever so long as the people of God shall endure, as we have already seen above from the prophet. For in this sense we may understand the prophecy, quote, From the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, said the Lord of hosts, unquote. Malachi 1, verse 11. So far are we from doing away with this sacrifice. Thus Paul beseeches us by the mercies of God to present our bodies, quote, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, unquote, our, quote, reasonable service, unquote, Romans 12, verse 1. Here he speaks very significantly when he adds that the service is reasonable, for he refers to the spiritual mode of worshiping God, and tacitly opposes it to the carnal sacrifices of the Mosaic law. Thus to do good and communicate are called sacrifices with which God is well pleased, Hebrews 13, verse 16. Thus, the kindness of the Philippians in relieving Paul's want is called, quote, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God, unquote. Philippians 4, verse 18. 
and thus all the good works of believers are called spiritual sacrifices. Section 17. And why do I enumerate? This form of expression is constantly occurring in Scripture. Nay, even while the people of God were kept under the external tutelage of the law, the prophets clearly expressed that under these carnal sacrifices there was a reality which is common both to the Jewish people and the Christian church. For this reason David prayed, quote, Let my prayer ascend forth before thee as incense, unquote. Psalm 141, verse 2. And Hosea gives the name of, quote, calves of the lips, unquote. Hosea 14, verse 3, to thanksgivings, which David elsewhere calls, quote, sacrifices of praise, unquote. The apostle, imitating him, speaks of offering, quote, the sacrifice of praise, unquote, which he explains to mean, quote, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, unquote. Hebrews 13, verse 15. This kind of sacrifice is indispensable in the Lord's Supper, in which, while we show forth his death and give him thanks, we offer nothing but the sacrifice of praise. From this office of sacrificing, all Christians are called, quote, a royal priesthood, end quote, because by Christ we offer that sacrifice of praise of which the Apostle speaks, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, First Peter 2, verse 9, and Hebrews 13, verse 15. We do not appear with our gifts in the presence of God without an intercessor. Christ is our mediator, by whose intervention we offer ourselves our all to the Father. He is our high priest, who, having entered into the upper sanctuary, opens up an access for us. He is the altar on which we lay our gifts, that whatever we do attempt, we may attempt in him. He it is, I say, who, quote, hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, unquote. Revelation 1, verse 6. Section 18. What remains but for the blind to see, the deaf to hear, children even to perceive this abomination of the mass, which held forth in a golden cup, has so intoxicated all the kings and nations of the earth, from the highest to the lowest, so struck them with stupor and giddiness, that duller than the lower animals, they have placed the vessel of their salvation in this fatal vortex. Certainly Satan never employed a more powerful engine to assail and starve the kingdom of Christ. This is the Helen for whom the enemies of the truth in the present day fight with so much rage, fury, and atrocity, and truly the Helen with whom they commit spiritual whoredom the most execrable of all. I am not here laying my little finger on those gross abuses by which they might pretend that the purity of their sacred mass is profaned, on the base traffic which they ply, the sordid gain which they make, the rapacity with which they satiate their avarice. I only indicate, and doubt in few and simple terms, how very sacred the sanctity of the Mass is, how well it has for several ages deserved to be admired and held in veneration. It were a greater work to illustrate these great mysteries as they deserve, and I am unwilling to meddle with their obscene impurities, which are daily before the eyes and faces of all, that it may be understood that the Mass, taken in the most choice form in which it can be exhibited without any appendages, teams from head to foot with all kinds of impiety, blasphemy, idolatry, and sacrilege. Section 19. My readers have here a compendious view of all that I have thought it of importance to know concerning these two sacraments, which have been delivered to the Christian Church to be used from the beginning of the new dispensation to the end of the world. Baptism being a kind of entrance into the Church, an initiation into the faith, and the Lord's Supper, the constant element by which Christ spiritually feeds his family of believers. Wherefore is theirs but one God, one faith, one Christ, one church, which is his body, so baptism is one, and is not repeated.
but the supper is ever and anon dispensed to intimate that those who are once allured into the church are constantly fed by Christ. Besides these two, no other has been instituted by God, and no other ought to be recognized by the assembly of the faithful. That sacraments are not to be instituted and set up by the will of man is easily understood by him who remembers what has been above with sufficient plainness expounded, these, that the sacraments have been appointed by God to instruct us in his promise and testify his good will towards us, and who, moreover, considers that the Lord has no counselor. Isaiah 40, verse 13, and Romans 11, verse 34. Who can give us any certainty as to his will, or assure us how he is disposed towards us, what he is disposed to give, and what to deny? From this it follows that no one can set forth a sign which is to be a testimonial of his will, and of some promise. He alone can give the sign, and bear witness to himself. I will express it more briefly, perhaps in homelier, but also in clearer terms. There never can be a sacrament without a promise of salvation. All men collected into one cannot of themselves give us any promise of salvation, and therefore they cannot of themselves give out and set up a sacrament. Section 20. With these two, therefore, let the Christian Church be contented, and not only not admit or acknowledge any third at present, but not even desire or expect it even until the end of the world. For though to the Jews were given, besides his ordinary sacraments, others differing somewhat according to the nature of the times, as the manna, the water gushing from the rock, the brazen serpent, and the like, by this variety they were reminded not to stop short at such figures, the state of which could not be durable, but to expect from God something better, to endure without decay and without end. Our case is very different. To us Christ has been revealed. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 verse 3, in such richness and abundance that to ask or hope for any new addition to these treasures is truly to offend God and provoke him against us. It behoves us to hunger after Christ only, to seek him, look to him, learn of him, and learn again until the arrival of the great day on which the Lord will fully manifest the glory of his kingdom and exhibit himself as he is to our admiring eye. 1 John 3 verse 2. And for this reason, this age of ours is designated in Scripture by the last hour, the last days, the last times, that no one may deceive himself with the vain expectation of some new doctrine or revelation. Our Heavenly Father, who, quote, at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, unquote, by his beloved Son, who alone can manifest, and in fact has fully manifested the Father, in so far as is of importance to us, while we now see him through a mirror. Now, since men have been denied the power of making these sacraments in the church of God, it were to be wished that in those which are of God there should be the least possible admixture of human invention. For just as when water is infused, the wine is diluted, and when leaven is put in, the whole mass is leavened, so the purity of the ordinances of God is impaired whenever man makes any addition of his own. And yet we see how far the sacraments, as at present used, have degenerated from their genuine purity. There is everywhere more than enough of pomp, ceremony, and gesticulation, while no account is taken or mention made of the word of God without which even the sacraments themselves are not sacraments. Nay, in such a crowd, the very ceremonies ordained by God cannot raise their head, but lie, as it were, oppressed. In baptism, as we have elsewhere justly complained, how little is seen of that which alone ought to shine and be conspicuous there, I mean, baptism itself. The supper was altogether buried when it was turned into the Mass. 
the utmost is that it is seen once a year, but in garbled, mutilated, and lacerated form. Chapter 19 Of the five sacraments falsely so called, their spuriousness proved, and their true character explained. There are 37 sections. Section 1 The above discourse concerning the sacraments might have the effect among the docile and sober-minded of preventing them from indulging their curiosity or from embracing without authority from the Word any other sacraments than those two which they know to have been instituted by the Lord. But since the idea of seven sacraments, almost common in the mouths of all, and circulated in all schools and sermons by mere antiquity, has struck its roots and is even now seated in the minds of men, I thought it might be worthwhile to give a separate and closer consideration of the other five which are vulgarly classed with the true and genuine sacraments of the Lord, and, after wiping away every gloss, to hold them up to the view of the simple, that they may see what their true nature is and how falsely they have hitherto been regarded as sacraments. Here, at the outset, I would declare to all the pious that I engage not in this dispute about a word for love of wrangling, but am induced by weighty causes to impugn the abuse of it. I am not unaware that Christians are the masters of words, as they are of all things, and that therefore they may at pleasure adapt words to things, provided a pious meaning is retained, though there should be some impropriety in the mode of expression. All this I concede, though it were better to make words subordinate to things than things to words. But in the name of sacrament, the case is different. For those who set down seven sacraments at the same time give this definition to all these, that they are visible forms of invisible grace, and at the same time make them all vehicles of the Holy Spirit, instruments for conferring righteousness, causes of procuring grace. Accordingly, the master of sentences himself denies that the sacraments of the Mosaic Law are properly called by this name, because they exhibited not what they figured. Is it tolerable, I ask, that the symbols which the Lord has consecrated with his own lips, which he has distinguished by excellent promises, should be regarded as no sacraments, and that, meanwhile, this honor should be transferred to those rites which men have either devised of themselves, or at least observe without any express command from God. Therefore, let them either change the definition, or refrain from this use of the word, which may afterwards give rise to false and absurd opinions. Extreme unction, they say, is a figure and cause of invisible grace, because it is a sacrament. If we cannot possibly admit the inference, we must certainly meet them on the subject of the name, that we may not receive it on terms which may furnish occasion for such an error. On the other hand, when they prove it to be a sacrament, they add the reason because it consists of the external sign and the word. If we find neither command nor promise, what else can we do than protest against it? Section 2 it now appears that we are not quarreling about a word, but raising a not unnecessary discussion as to the reality. Accordingly, we most strenuously maintain what we formerly confirmed by invincible argument, that the power of instituting a sacrament belongs to God alone, since a sacrament ought, by the sure promise of God, to raise up and comfort the consciences of believers, which could never receive this assurance from men. A sacrament ought to be a testimony of the good will of God toward us, of this no man or angel can be witness, since God has no counselor. Isaiah 40, verse 13, and Romans 11, verse 34. He himself alone with legitimate authority testifies of himself to us by his word. A sacrament is a seal of attestation or promise of God. Now it could not be sealed by corporeal things or the elements of this world, unless they were confirmed and set apart for this purpose by the will of God. 
Man, therefore, cannot institute a sacrament, because it is not in the power of man to make such divine mysteries lurk under things so abject. The word of God must proceed to make a sacrament to be a sacrament, as Augustine most admirably shows. Moreover, it is useful to keep up some distinction between sacraments and other ceremonies, if we would not fall into many absurdities. The apostles prayed on their bended knees, therefore our knees may not be bent without a sacrament. Acts 9 verse 20 and 20 verse 36. The disciples are said to have prayed for the east, thus looking at the east as a sacrament. Paul would have men in every place lift up pure hands. 1 Timothy 2 verse 8. And it is repeatedly stated that the saints prayed with uplifted hands. Let the outstretching therefore of hands also become a sacrament. In short, let all the gestures of saints pass into sacraments, though I should not greatly object to this, provided it was not connected with those greater inconveniences. Section 3. If they would press us with the authority of the ancient church, I say that they are using a gloss. This number 7 is nowhere found in the ecclesiastical writers, nor is it well ascertained at what time it crept in. I confess indeed that they sometimes use freedom with the term sacrament, but what do they mean by it? all ceremonies, external writs, and exercises of piety. But when they speak of those signs which ought to be testimonies of the divine favor toward us, they are contented with those two, baptism and the Eucharist. Lest any one suppose that this is falsely alleged by me, I will here give a few passages from Augustine. Quote, First, I wish you to hold that the principal point in this discussion is that our Lord Jesus Christ, as he himself says in the Gospel, has placed us under a yoke which is easy and a burden which is light. Hence he has knit together the society of his new people by sacraments, very few in number, most easy of observance, and most excellent in meaning, such as baptism consecrated by the name of the Trinity, such as the communion of the body and blood of the Lord, and any other if recommended in the canonical scriptures." Unquote. Again, quote, after the resurrection of our Lord, our Lord himself and apostolic discipline appointed instead of many a few signs, and these most easy of performance, most august in meaning, most chaste in practice, such as baptism and the celebration of the body and blood of the Lord, unquote. Why does he here make no mention of the sacred number, I mean seven? Is it probable that he would have omitted it if it had then been established in the church, especially seeing he is otherwise more curious in observing numbers than might be necessary? Nay, when he makes mention of baptism and the supper, and is silent as to others, does he not sufficiently intimate that these two ordinances excel in special dignity, and that other ceremonies sink down to an inferior place? Wherefore I say that those sacramentary doctors are not only unsupported by the word of God, but also by the consent of the early church, however much they may plume themselves on the pretense that they had this consent. But let us now come to particulars. Section 4. Of Confirmation. It was anciently customary for the children of Christians, after they had grown up, to appear before the bishop to fulfill that duty which was required of such adults as presented themselves for baptism. They sat among the catechumens until they were duly instructed in the mysteries of the faith, and could make a confession of it before bishop and the people. The infants, therefore, who had been initiated by baptism, not having then given a confession of faith to the church, were again, toward the end of their boyhood, or on adolescence, brought forward by their parents, and were examined by the bishop in terms of the catechism, which was then in common use. In order that this act, which otherwise justly required to be grave and holy, might have more reverence and dignity, the ceremony of laying on of hands was also used. Thus the boy, on his faith being approved, was dismissed with a solemn blessing. Ancient writers often make mention of this custom, 
Pope Leo says, quote, If anyone returns from heretics, let him not be baptized again, but let that which was there wanting to him, these, the virtue of the Spirit, be conferred by the laying on of the hands of the bishop, unquote. Our opponents will here exclaim that the name of sacrament is justly given to that by which the Holy Spirit is conferred. But Leo elsewhere explains what he means by these words. Quote, Let not him who was baptized by heretics be rebaptized, but to be confirmed by the laying on of hands with the invocation of the Holy Spirit, because he received only the form of baptism without sanctification. Unquote. Jerome also mentions it. Now, though I deny not that Jerome is somewhat under delusion when he says that the observance is apostolical, he is, however, very far from the follies of these men. And he softens the expression when he adds that this benediction is given to bishops only more in honor of the priesthood than from any necessity of law. This laying on of hands, which is done simply by way of benediction, I command and would like to see restored to its pure use in the present day. Section 5 a later age, having almost obliterated the reality, introduced a kind of fictitious confirmation as a divine sacrament. They feigned that the virtue of confirmation consisted in conferring the Holy Spirit for increase of faith on him who had been prepared in baptism for righteousness, and in confirming for contest those who in baptism were regenerated to life. This confirmation is performed by unction in the following form of words. Quote, I sign thee with the sign of the Holy Cross, and confirm thee with the chrism of salvation in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Unquote. All fair and venerable. But where is the word of God which promises the presence of the Holy Spirit here? Not one iota can they allege. How will they assure us that their chrism is a vehicle of the Holy Spirit? We see oil that is a thick and greasy liquid, but nothing more. Quote, let the word be added to the element, unquote, says Augustine, quote, and it will become a sacrament, unquote. Let them, I say, produce this word if they would have us to see anything more in the oil than oil. But if they would show themselves to be ministers of the sacraments as they ought, there would be no room for further dispute. The first duty of a minister is not to do anything without a command. Come then and let them produce some command for this ministry, and I will not add a word. If they have no command, they cannot excuse their sacrilegious audacity. For this reason, our Savior interrogated the Pharisees as to the baptism of John. Quote, Was it from heaven or of men? Unquote. Matthew 21, verse 25. If they had answered, Of men, he held them confessed that it was frivolous and vain. If of heaven, they were forced to acknowledge the doctrine of John. Accordingly, not to be too contumelious to John, they did not venture to say that it was of men. Therefore, if confirmation is of men, it is proved to be frivolous and vain. If they would persuade us that it is of heaven, let them prove it. Section 6. They indeed defend themselves by the example of the apostles, who, they presume, did nothing rashly. In this they are right, nor would they be blamed by us if they showed themselves to be imitators of the apostles. But what did the apostles do? Luke narrates, Acts 8, verses 15 and 17, that the apostles who were at Jerusalem, when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, sent thither Peter and John. Peter and John prayed for the Samaritans, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, who had not yet come upon any of them, they having only been baptized in the name of Jesus, that after prayer they laid their hands upon them, and that by this laying on of hands the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. Luke repeatedly mentions this laying on of hands. I hear what the apostles did, that is, they faithfully executed their ministry. 
pleased the Lord that those visible and admirable gifts of the Holy Spirit, which he then poured out upon his people, should be administered and distributed by his apostles by the laying on of hands. I think that there was no deeper mystery under this laying on of hands, but I interpret that this kind of ceremony was used by them to intimate by the outward act that they commended to God and, as it were, offered him on whom they laid hands. If this ministry which the apostles then performed still remain in the church, it would also behove us to observe the laying on of hands. But since that gift has ceased to be conferred, to what end is the laying on of hands? Assuredly, the Holy Spirit is still present with the people of God. Without his guidance and direction, the church of God cannot subsist. For we have a promise of perpetual duration by which Christ invites the thirsty to come to him, that they may drink living water. John 7, verse 37. But those miraculous powers and manifest operations which were distributed by the laying on of hands have ceased. They were only for a time, for it was right that the new preaching of the gospel, the new kingdom of Christ, should be signalized and magnified by unwanted and unheard of miracles. When the Lord ceased from these, he did not forthwith abandon his church, but intimated that the magnificence of his kingdom and the dignity of his word had been sufficiently manifested. In what respect, then, can these stage players say that they imitate the apostles? The object of the laying on of hands was that the evident power of the Holy Spirit might be immediately exerted. This they effect not. Why, then, do they claim to themselves the laying on of hands, which is indeed said to have been used by the apostles, but altogether to a different end? Section 7. The same account is to be given where anyone to insist that the breathing of our Lord upon his disciples, John 20, verse 22, is a sacrament by which the Holy Spirit is conferred. But the Lord did this once for all, and did not also wish us to do it. In the same way also the apostles laid their hands agreeably to that time at which it pleased the Lord that the visible gifts of the Spirit should be dispensed in answer to their prayers. Not that posterity might, as those apes do, mimic the empty and useless sign without the reality. But if they prove that they imitate the apostles in the laying on of hands, though in this they have no resemblance to the apostles, except it be in manifesting some absurd false seal, where did they get their oil, which they call the oil of salvation? Who taught them to seek salvation in oil? Who taught them to attribute it to the power of strengthening? Was it Paul, who draws us far away from the elements of this world and condemns nothing more than clinging to such observances? This I boldly declare, not of myself, but from the Lord. Those who call oil the oil of salvation abjure the salvation which is in Christ, deny Christ, and have no part in the kingdom of God. Oil for the belly, and a belly for oil, but the Lord will destroy both. For all these weak elements, which perish even in the using, have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, and will never perish. What then, someone will say, do you apply the same rule to the water by which we are baptized, and the bread and wine under which the Lord's Supper is exhibited? I answer that in the sacraments of divine appointment, two things are to be considered, the substance of the corporeal thing which is set before us, and the form which has been impressed upon it by the word of God, and in which its whole force lies. And as far then as the bread, wine, and water which are presented to our view in the sacraments retain their substance, Paul's declaration applies, quote, meats for the belly, and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them, unquote, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, for they pass and vanish away with the fashion of this world. But in as far as they are sanctified by the word of God to be sacraments, they do not confine us to the flesh, but teach truly and spiritually. Section 8. 
but let us make a still closer inspection and see how many monsters this greasy oil fosters and nourishes. Those in order say that the Holy Spirit is given in baptism for righteousness, and in confirmation for increase of grace, that in baptism we are regenerated for life, and in confirmation equipped for contest. And accordingly they are not ashamed to deny that baptism can be duly completed without confirmation. How nefarious! Are we not then buried with Christ by baptism and made partakers of his death, that we may also be partners of his resurrection? This fellowship with the life and death of Christ, Paul interprets to mean the mortification of our flesh and the quickening of the spirit, our old man being crucified in order that we may walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verse 6. What is it to be equipped for contest if this is not? But if they deemed it as nothing to trample on the word of God, why did they not at least reverence the church to which they would be thought to be in everything so obedient? What heavier charge can be brought against their doctrine than the decree of the council of Melita? Quote, Let him who says that baptism is given for the remission of sins only, and not in aid of future grace, be anathema. Unquote. When Luke, in the passage which we have quoted, says that the Samaritans were only, quote, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, unquote, Acts 8, verse 16, but had not received the Holy Spirit, he does not say absolutely that those who believed in Christ with the heart and confessed him with the mouth were not endued with any gift of the Spirit. He means that receiving of the Spirit by which miraculous power and visible graces were received. Thus the apostles are said to have received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 4, whereas Christ had long before said to them, quote, It is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you, unquote, Matthew 10, verse 20. Ye who are of God, see the malignant and pestiferous wile of Satan. What was truly given in baptism is falsely said to be given in the confirmation of it, that he may stealthily lead away the unwary from baptism. Who can now doubt that this doctrine, which dissevers the proper promises of baptism from baptism and transfers them elsewhere, is a doctrine of Satan? We have discovered on what foundation this famous unction rests. The Word of God says that as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ with his gifts. Galatians 3, verse 27. The Word of the Anointer says that they received no promise in baptism to equip them for contest. The former is the Word of Truth. The latter must be the Word of Falsehood. I can define this baptism more truly than they themselves have hitherto defined it, these, that it is a noted insult to baptism, the use of which it obscures, nay, abolishes that it is a false suggestion of the devil, which draws us away from the truth of God, or, if you prefer it, that it is oil polluted with a lie of the devil, deceiving the minds of the simple, by shrouding them, as it were, in darkness. Section 9. They add, moreover, that all believers ought, after baptism, to receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, that they may become complete Christians, inasmuch as there never can be a Christian who has not been chrismed by Episcopal confirmation, these are their exact words. I thought that everything pertaining to Christianity was prescribed and contained in Scripture. Now I see that the true form of religion must be sought and learned elsewhere than in Scripture. Divine wisdom, heavenly truth, the whole doctrine of Christ, only begins the Christian. It is the oil that perfects him. By this sentence are condemned all the apostles and the many martyrs who, it is absolutely certain, were never chrismed, the oil not yet being made, besmeared with which they might fulfill all the parts of Christianity, or rather become Christians, which as yet they were not. Though I were silent, they abundantly refute themselves. How small the proportion of the people whom they anoint after baptism! 
Why then did they allow among their flock so many half-Christians whose imperfection they might easily remedy? Why with such supine negligence do they allow them to omit what cannot be omitted without grave offense? Why did they not more rigidly insist on a matter so necessary that without it salvation cannot be obtained unless, perhaps, when the act has been anticipated by sudden death, when they allow it to be thus licentiously despised, they tacitly confess that it is not of the importance which they pretend. Section 10. Lastly, they conclude that the sacred unction is to be held in greater veneration than baptism, because the former is specially administered by the higher order of priests, whereas the latter is dispensed in common by all priests whatever. What can you say here but that they are plainly mad in thus plumbing themselves on their own inventions, while in comparison with these they carelessly contend the sacred ordinances of God? Sacrilegious mouth. Dare you oppose oil, merely polluted with your fetid breath, and charmed by your muttered words, to the sacrament of Christ, and compare it with water sanctified by the word of God? But even this was not enough for your improbity. You must also prefer it. Such are the responses of the Holy See, such the oracles of the apostolic tripod. But some of them have begun to moderate this madness, which, even in their own opinion, was carried too far. It is to be held in greater veneration, they say, not perhaps because of the greater virtue and utility which it confers, but because it is given by more dignified persons and in a more dignified part of the body, the forehead, or because it gives a greater increase of virtue, though baptism is more effectual for forgiveness. But do they not, by their first reason, prove themselves to be Donatists, who estimate the value of the sacrament by the dignity of the minister? Grant, however, that confirmation may be called the more dignified from the dignity of the bishop's hand. Still, should any one ask how this great prerogative was conferred on the bishops, what reason can they give but their own caprice? The right was used only by the apostles, who alone dispensed the Holy Spirit. Are bishops alone apostles? Are they apostles at all? However, let us grant this also. Why do they not, on the same grounds, maintain that the sacrament of blood and the Lord's Supper is to be touched only by bishops? Their reason for refusing it to legs is that it was given by our Lord to the apostles only. If the apostles only, why not infer then to bishops only? But in that place they make the apostles simple presbyters, whereas here another vertigo seizes them and they suddenly elect them bishops. Lastly, Ananias was not an apostle, and yet Paul was sent to him to receive his sight, to be baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 9 verse 17 I will add, though cumulatively, if, by divine right, this office was peculiar to bishops, why have they dared to transfer it to plebeian presbyters, as we read in one of the epistles of Gregory? Section 11. How frivolous, inept, and stolid the other reason that the confirmation is worthier than the baptism of God, because in confirmation it is the forehead that is besmeared with oil, and in baptism the cranium, as if baptism were performed with oil and not with water. I take all the pious to witness, whether it be not the one aim of these miscreants to adulterate the purity of the sacraments by their leaven. I have said elsewhere that what is of God in the sacraments can scarcely be got a glimpse of among the crowd of human inventions. If any did not then give me credit for the fact, let them now give it to their own teachers. Here, passing over water and making it of no estimation, they set a great value on oil alone in baptism. We maintain against them that in baptism also the forehead is sprinkled with water, in comparison with which we do not value your oil one straw, whether in baptism or in confirmation. 
But if anyone alleges that oil is sold for more, I answer that by this accession of value, any good which might otherwise be in it is vitiated, so far is it from being lawful fraudulently to vend this most vile imposture. They betray their impiety by the third reason, when they pretend that a greater increase of virtue is conferred in confirmation than in baptism. By the laying on of hands, the apostles dispense the visible gifts of the Spirit. In what respect does the oil of these men prove its fecundity? They have done with these guides, who cover one sacrilege with many acts of sacrilege. It is a Gordian knot, which it is better to cut than to lose so much labor in untying. Section 12. When they see that the word of God and everything like plausible argument fail them, they pretend as usual that the observance is of the highest antiquity and is confirmed by the consent of many ages. Even were this true, they gain nothing by it. A sacrament is not of earth, but of heaven, not of men, but of God only. They must prove God to be the author of their confirmation if they would have it to be regarded as a sacrament. But why obtrude antiquity, seeing that ancient writers, whenever they would speak precisely, nowhere mention more than two sacraments? Were the bulwark of our faith to be sought from men, we have an impregnable citadel in this, that the fictitious sacraments of these men were never recognized as sacraments by ancient writers. They speak of the laying on of hands, but did they call it a sacrament? Augustine distinctly affirms that it is nothing but prayer. Let them not hear yup out one of their vile distinctions, that the laying on of hands to which Augustine referred was not the confirmatory, but the curative or reconciliatory. His book is extant and in men's hands. If I rest to it any meaning different from that which Augustine himself wrote it, they are welcome not only to load me with reproaches after their wanted manner, but to stead upon me. He is speaking of those who returned from schism to the unity of the church. He says that they have no need of a repetition of baptism, for the laying on of hands is sufficient that the Lord may bestow the Holy Spirit upon them by the bond of peace. But as it might seem absurd to repeat laying on of hands more than baptism, he shows the difference. Quote, what, unquote, he asks, quote, is the laying on of hands but prayer over the man, unquote. That this is his meaning is apparent from another passage where he says, quote, Because of the bond of charity, which is the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit, without which all the other holy qualities which a man may possess are ineffectual for salvation, the hand is laid on reformed heretics, unquote. Section 13. I wish we could retain the custom which, as I have observed, existed in the early church before this abortive mask of his sacrament appeared. It would not be such a confirmation as they pretend, one which cannot even be named without injury to baptism, but catechizing by which those in boyhood are immediately beyond it would give an account of their faith in the face of the church. And the best method of catechizing would be, if a form were drawn up for this purpose, containing and briefly explaining the substance of almost all the heads of our religion, in which the whole body of the faithful ought to concur without controversy. A boy of ten years of age would present himself to the church to make a profession of faith, would be questioned on each head, and give answers to each. If he was ignorant of any point or did not well understand it, he would be taught. Thus, while the whole church looked on and witnessed, he would profess the one true sincere faith with which the body of the faithful, with one accord, worship one God. Were this discipline in force in the present day, it would undoubtedly whet the sluggishness of certain parents, who carelessly neglect the instruction of their children, as if it did not at all belong to them, but who could not then omit it without public disgrace. There would be greater agreement in faith among the Christian people, and not so much ignorance and rudeness. Some persons would not be so readily carried away by new and strange dogmas, 
In fine, it would furnish all with a methodical arrangement of Christian doctrine. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.